0: Welcome to the DGR Podcast. I'm your host, David Gray. Hello everyone, David here. Welcome back to the DGR Podcast. I hope you're all doing very, very well. Today for episode twenty six, I have a very special guest. I have John Coyley. Very excited to bring John on. He is first and foremost a good, solid Irish man, which is very important. And he's also the senior lecturer in performance and innovation in the University of Limerick, and he supervises the PhD candidates as well there. So he's reached someone who's reached a high level in the acad- academic world. He's contributed a ton with his thoughts and his articles and his research papers there on numerous different topics. And he's also suppose a rare gem that has reached a high level in terms of the s world as well. So I won't be able to do him justice really with my intro, but he's worked with some of the roles he's had. He's worked with Egypt football slash soccer team in 2018 World Cup. He's worked with Ireland rugby in World Cup and Six Nations campaigns. He's worked with several track and field athletes in world championship level and Olymp- Olympic level, and he's worked with Paralympic high-level Paralympic athletes as well. So that's just a few of the things. I'm sure there's a lot of gaps that John could fill in as well. If you if you really were able to pull it out of him, and he has had a good athletic career himself as well, so a ton of experience in numerous different ways. Today we spoke a lot about um, periodization. We spoke about or a bit about periodization, a bit about placebo, and a lot about running coordination, reflexes, smoothness in running. Kind of what's going on under the hood here, outside of what we just see on a macro level. What's happening? Within the body, what's happening with these reflexes and stuff like that? So, unbelievable conversation. Honestly, John is someone who's probably influenced how I think and talk about movement and humans more than more than probably anyone else. I think if you're if you're to do like a top level of of people in the industry who we should be looking up to, then John should be right at the top of that list. And I genuinely mean that. I think he's had a massive, massive influence on me, which is interesting because today was the first time I actually spoke to him, and that was. That kind of speaks to how important are the power of writing and the power of podcasting and, and stuff like that can actually be you can have a massive influence on people through even social media, stuff like that. you can have a big influence on people just because you write something and then you kind of you think it's gone out into the ether. but if you're having a positive influence on on someone or man, one or many people, then like that's a, that's a really big deal and that's something that um, that's something that John has had a massive influence on me and um maybe I should have wrote to him sooner sooner to actually tell him that but um hopefully today was today was good enough and I was I was just absolutely buzzing to get him on and chat to him so uh the way he talks about movement thinks about movement stuff like that are not movement but problems the way he the, the level of kind of uncertainty he has about things for someone who's reached such a high level kind of gives me and the rest of us maybe a kick in the arse to say actually we're way too certain that we're right about things here so uh so yeah, I think that's a very valuable point of view from him. Is the way he articulates himself is very valuable for people to other people to listen to. Just with, in, with regards to our membership, a couple of the videos that we've we've been putting up recently this week and last week. So I did a video on the, that right pelvic orientation, which so many people present with. Uh, why it's kind of there, the asymmetries, the natural born asymmetries. I did a video on yielding versus stiff plyometrics, or kind of collisions or jumping. So plyometrics, you can't. Technically classified, but I kind of classified them into those two things and i gave some examples of both and ex- explanations of both. I did a video now today on right pelvic orientation, like a, pl- a practical class, like you see how to kind of how to kind of test for that and then some of the exercises you might use to try and clean that up. And Matt, also Matt from Plus Plyos, did a presentation on implementing biometrics in the return to play process and uh, how he would look at that, how he would program it, the contacts the amount of landings that he would be looking for week one week two week three that type of thing so lots of good stuff gone up there lots of chat between our members and um and yeah we're just building this into the best educational resource that you could get so uh so make sure you join us there on dgr interactive use the code dgr podcast for 20 percent off if you're really serious about learning and you like this podcast and stuff like that then that is really the place that you should be and you will learn in short short kind of sharp snippets of information every single week and you can go at your own pace and um yeah just commit to 10 or 15 minutes a a week or 20 minutes a week and the compound effect will take will take place there. So, um, so yeah. no more about that. I hope you really enjoyed this episode with John Kiley. uh Please, obviously, give him a shout or whatever. I would love if you could tag me and him on Instagram or something like that because it would help me maybe convince John to get come back on for a second episode if he saw if he saw a bit of love after that. So, uh, so yeah. Here's the episode, and I hope you enjoy. Perfect, John. How are you doing? Thank you very much for joining me.
1: Uh, good, David. Thanks very much for the invitation. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah. What What time is it in Limerick?
1: Uh, well, we're currently on British British summer time, so I make it fourteen thirty four today.
0: Yeah. Same as How here others. So- yeah. Is it? Oh,
1: yeah.
0: um, Would you <laughs> like raining? to? It's It's, it's a lovely day here, actually. Nice and Nice and windy, actually. So the the problem with the wind here is, so I I I took over my dad's stable, so we have our gym and our clinic and all that stuff here, but it's kind of out in the countryside a bit. So sometimes the power goes. So if the power goes, if you just, if I disappear, that's, a, I haven't hung up on you.
1: Okay, great. My
0: fragile ego then won't just jump to that conclusion. Brilliant. No, please. Um, would you like to give us a bit of a, an intro? You can be honestly as long or short as as you want, but I know you have a bit of an interesting story or background. So um, whatever, whatever you find is relevant, I suppose. Uh,
1: yeah, okay. So I guess... My name is John Kiley. Uh, I work at the University of Limerick, but only for the past six weeks. So my title is, like everyone else, I have a glorified title that doesn't mean much, Senior Lecturer in Performance and Innovation. And I work in the Professional Doctorate course in Performance and Innovation, which is designed for experienced practitioners in whatever their realm, but, you know, something to do with the performance domain uh, who are looking at you know, a, a higher pathway to a doctoral level qualification. So that's what I do. And yeah, I get to interact with lots and lots of interesting people, you know, working a, a lot at kind of elite levels, Premier League, NFL, Premiership Rugby, International Football and Rugby. But lots of people who I think is, they're just as important, just as high quality coaches, physios, uh, support staff who work in maybe children or youth sport, things like that. So it's not just an elite focus. It is more focused on yeah, anyone who's who has an angle on human performance. So, so that's what I do at the moment. Prior to that, I worked in a university in the UK uh, where we, we set up a, the, the first professional doctorate in the UK that that's now kind of grown and it's become a, you know, there's maybe a dozen u- universities now who have similar professional doctorates or, or other professional do- doctorates. Prior to that, uh, as a coach, practitioner, SNC rehabber, slash fitness coach for about twenty years, uh, and yeah, so I've been around the block, but, but that's the the headlines if you like. I I, I guess the one other thing to add. Um, as a practitioner, I, I was interested in you know, various questions and to try and help myself understand them, I decided to write them, if you know what I mean. There's no saying, if you want to understand something, write it. And I, I, I was working with UK Track and Field and I was just writing about this concept of periodization at night essentially Um, and I had read somewhere that you know the average academic journal paper gets read by seven people so I thought okay I can handle seven people uh taking you know taking the mickey out of me so so I wrote that paper that was in 2012 but it landed pretty well and uh yeah. So since then, I found I enjoyed writing. So I, I, I've written quite a few pieces since then, and, and still spend a decent portion of my time trying to write and explain things to myself first. Uh, and if if it helps others, then that's another bonus.
0: More than more than seven people have have read the stuff by now.
1: Yeah, it's in the double figures as far as I know. Well, <laughs> it's actually that that particular piece. Uh, it's the last time I looked. Uh, it was the most read piece in that journal, which is kind of astonishing to me. But yeah, definitely not what I expected.
0: You picked up a lot of haters on the way with with, with that one. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. A few, I mean, a few, I won't say a lot. Yeah, but no, definitely...
1: no, 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 no. But, but no, but for sure. But I mean, I have to say that that doesn't really bother me or irritate me. You know, it's not like I'm. I would like to think that I've changed my mind since I wrote that piece and I'll change it again. And for people who are hate or, or, yeah, now, it really doesn't bother me. I'm just doing my best to figure things out. Mm-hmm. You know, that was my truth at the time. And hopefully my truth will change as I move along. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that when I first came across all your work, that kind of that was like the start of the downward spiral in the Dunning-Kruger effect for me, where it was, I, you know, I thought I knew more than I did. I thought I had a lot of answers, clearly defined answers and stuff like that. And then heard the way you were talking about things and were were answering questions on podcasts and different things like that. And it very much, very much made me question a lot of things in in a good way. You know, it was like, actually, I don't have the answer here. I just have what, maybe a bias or whatever, but what I think might be my best answer right now, but it doesn't mean it's the right thing. So that, um, yeah, that, that, that started me down a path, I suppose, and I'm probably still there, to be honest.
1: Uh, you know, uh, it's a really interesting point. And I'm sorry, I'm going to take you off the tangent now, but back in um, 2005, I was just randomly, this was, these were the days I used to go to a bookshop. I randomly picked up this book written by an academic in the UK called Philip Tetlock. And really quickly, what he'd done is he'd done a 20-year study, trying to figure out how good experts were at making predictions about what's going to happen next in their area of expertise. 20 years, 10,000 questions, a minimum of 10 years experience, minimum of PhD kind of level qualifications. So, you know, these weren't just people on the street. These were experts. But he also asked people on the street. At the end of the 20 years, you know, crunch all the stats, there's multiple papers, uh, studies off it. But the ultimate summarizing line was experts' predictions were about as good as dark throwing chips. So I read that small book documenting the 20 years and read all about how experts deluded themselves, were overconfident, listened to their press rather than, you know, trying to take a neutral or an external perspective on their success. Told themselves stories that kind of glorified themselves and excused their excuses or excuse their mistakes or errors. And then I went, I had a crisis (laughs) because I was like everyone else. I thought, no, I'm good. And, you know, I was in quite a high profile uh, job in in the UK at the time. And it was just, oh my God, I don't really know what I'm doing. All of these traps these experts fall into, I am falling into on a regular basis. Uh, So I I think I'm just about coming out of that now. How
0: are you getting out of that?
1: Inch by inch.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, I'll tell you, you know, to be serious about it, it, it's a big thing because uh, our professions, what what you're dealing with, whether it's patients or, or athletes and whether it's injury, rehab, RTP or performance, it's all about... You are making a prediction of what's led you to work. Now, how often do we evaluate those predictions? It's very difficult, but uh, if that that work hasn't been done in our realms, but it has been done in other realms, you know uh, politics, economics, you know really, really high level research. what you find is that you're not good just because you're an expert. You're not good just because you've ten or twenty years in the tank. That doesn't make you good. What makes you good is pretty much the attitude you take. Are you overconfident? Are you uh, self-critical? You know, do you do you interrogate your mistakes, or do you brush them under the carpet? And we all have a kind of a natural tendency to brush them under the carpet. So, uh, I guess this message became most popular there was a book super forecasters maybe three or four years ago that Techlock was one of the core authors and uh, and that talked a lot about the the fallibility of human judgment and decision making which again is our bread and butter in a sense uh, and it was a it was a really good read and what i would say is the kind of top line for practitioners is that Predictions, accurate predictions are really, really hard. We can be better. We can't be perfect. But there's nearly a a set of traits and characteristics we can take with us that make us better. And they're around basic things like some humility, not planning too far ahead in the future, uh, constantly looking for information, sifting through that information, applying it to your experience and making small tweaks as you go and just earlier this year a new paper again from that group came out and it just talked about how the best human forecasters seem to they're they're very thoughtful about their original judgment they don't just arrive at snap decisions and then as they go they search for information they sift through that information they Try and figure out how to weight that information is this really important or is it minorly important is it you know trivial and then they change their plan so they're they're tweakers they're you know they fuss they consider what they're doing and they consider is there a better way to do it and that that's obviously in a very general realm but you apply that to the sports to rtp rehab and you think well that that's a pretty consistent message you know, that and it's something that a lot of experienced people in those worlds will go, yeah, that's what you do. You need to always be be thoughtful, be critical of your own work, be looking for learning opportunities and be tweaking as you go. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm gonna no, have to go off on a crazy tangent after going off on a crazy tangent to stop me but obviously it's all the, we all have to make a kind of personal judgment and how we how sensitive, how responsive we're gonna be. Because if you're jumping at every new fad, you're going to be erratic. At the same time, at the other end of the spectrum, if you're stuck in your way as, no, mm-hmm. oh, no, I did this once and it worked, so I'm going to do it forevermore, you know, over-exaggerated example, then you're not going to be sensitive at all. And it's about us trying to find our calibration point. At what stage am I open to new information and am I willing to change my biases? And it's not easy and it's an ongoing evolution and it's something we have to focus on all the time and the amazing thing to me is there's so much of that decision making research but i never came across it in my education you know no one ever told me to be a good coach you need you know it's all about predicting it's all about making good good decisions the assumption was i'm going to you know through courses conferences university whatever there's an assumption that Lecturers, whoever in a position of authority, downloads information into your brain, and that automatically makes you better. No, it doesn't. Uh, the kind of mindset you carry into decision making mm-hmm. makes you better.
0: Sorry. <laughs> no, so, no, that's good. That's really good. For it. Um, when it comes to like taking taking that thought process into uh, working with a client, let's say in the rehab process, where maybe their confidence has taken a little bit of a knock and they're you know they're just a little bit unsure and uncertain and maybe afraid at the time and your confidence or your your confidence like the i suppose the, the confidence that you're trying to instill in them because we know like how important that is if someone is under confident in their body then they're going to be perform obviously not not as good so like how do you how do you toe that line between trying to show them or help them understand that or, or give have them between them having confidence in you and you not being overconfident and too bullish on this is what's going to work and this is the timeline um without yeah without like without actually just tricking the person or kind of lying to the person in front of you
2: Um, that's a great question um first of all what i would say is i think it's
1: it's a really important question because i think if it's a client, a patient, an athlete that is working with you, and they do not have confidence in you, you are wasting their time. Effectively, so they have to have confidence in you. That's not the same as them liking you or thinking you're funny or you're crack or you're good conversation. It's about them thinking, okay, this person can take me to where I want to be or move me closer to where I want to be. So I think again if we go back to how our various trades are educated, it's all about learning the mechanical challenges. You might learn some basic psychology, but there isn't anything really about actually how I portray myself, how I present to the people I'm working with is really, really important. How I listen to them, how I
2: instill in them the belief that, you know, coach
1: really has my best interests at heart. Those things are critically important, and we totally. It. Um, I think, and again, this is pervasive from you know I, I, I'm on a coach myself, so i'm twenty two so I know what like coaching kids, amateur athletes is like right the way up to you know world famous athletes. Coaches haven't really cracked this, or aren't really aware of this, and we put our foot in it on a regular basis.. Now, I guess just so I don't wander off in this too much, I'll just bring it very quickly to the placebo re- research. Because if you think of what placebo is, first of all, the power of placebo across uh, ail- you know, it, different ailments, but also performance, it's, it's pervasive. Nearly every time it's examined, it's, you know, it's showing meaningful for benefit. But placebo doesn't have anything to do with deceit, really. I know that's how we think of it culturally in our heads. But for example, if you look at recent trials in open-label placebo, where you know, a patient comes in, most famously, it was with uh, chronic sufferers of irritable bowel, you know, which was ex- extremely painful, extremely distressing. And in 2008, there was a study done in Harvard, brought people like this in, a couple of hundred of and, and said, this is the placebo. There is nothing in this that could possibly uh, help your recovery or reduce your pain but placebos have been used have been found to be effective in all these different realms gives the patient a placebo have as much effect as the standard uh the, the conventional standard of care so i i guess the reason i bring that up it's just and, and and that's been repeated multiple times since and Surgically as well, you know, we didn't intervene with you surgically, but you got better. But you know we might have cut you, we sliced you open, we stitched you up, but we didn't do anything else. But you still got a bit better. And um, it's, it's just to say that belief isn't just a nice to have. It's not just a cold feeling like, well, it's the right thing to do. It actually has a difference in outcomes. It has a difference in in perception, in emotion, in cognition in athletes sense of both trust with their coach, but also it will, it will regulate how well they can perform for sure.
0: I think I said something on social media, there was a conversation recently, and I said that with clients, I was asked the question and I said that you're either going to, no matter what you do, you're either going to placebo clients or nocebo clients. Is that? Is that is that is that relatively correct? Like let's say you have someone with back pain coming into you and you they think their back is fragile, or they, they just they just have pain in their back. Like it's it's almost impossible to make a completely neutral statement. So you're either going to help them understand or help them think, okay, my back is actually a bit stronger than I think it is, or my back is is a little bit worse than I think it is, and it's damaged and it's going to fall to pieces. So no matter what I say, I'm going to do one of those two things. So I'm probably going to err on the side of placebo if I can.
1: Well, uh, it's a really good point, and the fact is, there is no neutral. You can't be neutral. Um, and if I if I come into work with you, and I have some distressing condition, I, th- that's really important to me. And I'm looking at you for any type of cue to say, "Oh, this looks bad," or "Oh, this looks bright." You know, what way does the future look? And I think placebo, um, I need to come back to nocebo in a minute, but placebo and nocebo, I think they're, uh, they're, they're, they're small, they're so phenomenal. And it's ba- they're basically a reflection of the way we operate, the only way we could survive you know, throughout the demands of evolution has been we have a predictive brain. We predict what is likely to happen next. If I come to you, and I think, oh, this guy is good. And, oh, he's really paid attention to what I'm saying and to the, my description of, of what I think might work in the future, et cetera, et cetera. And look, oh, he's an award the up there. and his trophy over there or whatever it is. All of those things, they're all kind of backward, back, backward background context that inspire me a little bit to think, okay, well, the future looks a bit brighter. Than I thought. If the future looks a bit brighter, then what is happening is really my brain is making a judgment and saying, okay, well, I can afford to release some resources. I don't have to conserve them for a rainy day, I thought was coming. I can release those resources. Now, those resources could be neurological, biological, electrical, everything. And the brain has uh, and." You know, infinite number of little knobs that it can twiddle and then make a small bit of a difference. I and mean, enough of them are turning the right way. You know, maybe you're taking some some nocebic signal and your your brain is uh, playing with its timing a little bit. Uh, you're getting different release of neurochemicals because all of a sudden you feel a little more confident or a little more hopeful. There's all these multi-level outcomes that change when you just look at things with a slightly more hopeful view or a slightly more pessimistic view. So placebo and placebo are kind of, they're, they're a reflection of that greater phenomenon of this kind of predictive processing brain that we have. And I think that's a good way to understand it. I just want to come back to Nasebo because I think this is really important. And certainly in my world, which is kind of, you know, the practical uh, dimensions of uh, actually daily life and
2: coaching. There's a NaSIBO
1: has, or, you know, in the research in the past five, six years, has been shown to have a disproportionately powerful effect. So if you could have the same amount of, like, this is, X amount of placebo, this is X amount of placebo. has a dis- disproportionately negative effect mm-hmm. compared to the positive effect of placebo. So theoretically, then you could say, well, I can I can be uh I can inspire confidence, like you know, trust, consistency, all these things, but it doesn't take much bad messaging to pull the rug out from under that. And I think that's something that. That is really important. And we get it certainly in my world in, in kind of coaching at high levels. So many good practices, but too often people fall victim to you know, they just they get pissed off, they they get annoyed with people, they say something, they think, Oh yeah, well look, I was just I was just a bit crusty, I was a bit tired, whatever it is. But they have real negative effects.
0: I stopped there. I went yeah, down no, for that's a it's, that's a seriously big deal. Like in the, you know, you can especially in the pain world. Like you can almost go. That might sound dramatic, now, but you can you can like someone with back pain. You could ruin their life by giving them some kind of nocebic. Like your back is your back is doing whatever. Twenty years later, they still haven't rounded their back to pick up a pen because of that, and that's a very real thing. I think.
1: No, I, I completely agree, and I think. You know, the pain science is the best example, of is leading the charge in this world, really. And I've certainly been at multiple meetings with, you know, over past 16, 17 years with elite athletes, and they have a little niggle, and straight away, they get an MRI, and then we all gather around the MRI, and the doctor or the medic is going, oh yeah, God, oh. But... If you're an athlete and you have you know, Olympic Games in a year's time and you're hearing this, that has an effect. Mm-hmm. That effect is obviously, you know, you, you close up, you're just like, oh, no, this is bad. And there's a whole sequence of negative events to kind of cascade down from that and start to have a real impact, start to increase anxiety, decrease issues like movement coordination. You know, small, subtle ways. But if we're responsible for enhancing performance, you know, and and we fuss over the technical and physical things so much, but we neglect all this other side that really is the foundation that you build the technical, the physical things upon. So I think, yeah, you know, that we need to take care of that foundation first and foremost.
0: Yeah, that's what the best, like you see any of the best coaches, that's what they're doing. And that's why like, they can write down their technical model on paper and this is, their, this is the exercise they use, this is the sets and reps, this is how they periodize or not periodize or whatever. But then like, those little interactions that they have with their, with their clients or their athletes on a daily basis, you might not even pick up with it if you weren't, weren't watching, but like just a little pat on the back or how they say something to them or just how they just connect with someone. They all, like, I don't know about they all, but a lot of the best coaches just seem to have that little bit of an X factor that is very, very hard to measure.
1: Again, I would agree. And what I would say is, and and again, this is just personal experience, but I've seen coaches, you know, at kind of Olympic or uh, world standard in, in international teams. And it's very hard to have it. to to pick out a consistent set of beliefs among them. And some of them are kind of big personalities and effusive and talkative, and some are very quiet. But I think what they all have in common is they all hold the athlete's attention and the athlete believes that this coach is the right coach for them. And it's so, again, this is just anecdotal, but so often when things start to go wrong, athletes' performance, you know, if, if relationship things are going wrong, performance goes down, injury goes up. I've also seen that coaches, again, Olympic gold gold medal winning standards, you know, people I would work closely with and their technical knowledge, you would have to say, if you were to evaluate it in any Really uh, strict format. Their technical knowledge isn't great, but their relationships with the athletes were powerful, absolutely powerful. I've never seen it work the other way. I know plenty of coaches who were extremely studious, academic, uh, meticulous, you know, from a kind of uh, what you might think of as a coaching intelligence perspective, very high performers, but if they couldn't establish the relationship, They just drifted out of the train and they ended up as academics or writing really good books, but they just couldn't relate on the ground.
0: Yeah, 100%. I look at what's happening with Man United at the moment and you see in the press, like every six months, it's like the players have stopped playing. And I'm sure some of the players have stopped playing for the manager, but I think a lot of it is, it's not as conscious as people think. I think if you've ever been in a dressing room, which obviously you have, I have as well, like if you don't believe in a manager, you just go out and decide, I'm not playing for the manager. But everyone drops that few percent and across the team that looks like that's a, that's a big difference. So I think people think it's just like someone sits down and says, I'm not going to perform for this manager. But actually when no. you just lose faith for someone, it's like most, profi- most top level athletes have a, a lot of respect for themselves where they will go out and try their best. But their best, their best when they don't believe in something is, n- is not the same.
1: Well, again, I agree. And it's, I try my best, but maybe there's a shift. Am I trying my best for me or trying my best for the team and our collective goal? Yeah, there's a whole kind of avalanche of negative consequences that fall out of that. Mm -hmm. And and I I think, you know, the research picks this up broadly. You know, you get a new head coach, normally there's a bump. But whether or not that bump is sustained, some of it depends on, look, do you get a sequence of the right results? And a lot of it depends on consistency of the coach. Is this someone that, you know, am I rocking up to training and thinking, what mood is the coach going to turn up in? Because sometimes she's great, sometimes she's erratic, sometimes, you know, he's off the wall, says crazy things, sometimes he doesn't talk to me. That type of inconsistency undermines foundation of athletic development. mm mm-hmm.
0: Do you think there's room for that kind of inconsistency as well
1: though? Uh, so if you're suggesting like could you be strategically inconsistent at certain times I would think you know I I, I would I would think that there's room for it but you would have to be strategic about it. I, and a lot of coaches and I'm not saying um, uh, a lot of coaches because they don't think about this they don't regulate it. they don't think mm-hmm. okay I'm going to I'm going to lose the top a little bit here, but I'm doing it for these reasons. It's normally when it's happens is I'm going to lose the top a little bit here and I'm doing it because I'm in. And that's not professional. For in, in, in my book, you know, if you're doing, like, I think there was a, a coach, a physical, a medic, where you're in front of a player who's looking to you for guidance. You have to be professional, and being professional means not acting on your own instincts, not acting like emotionally, not going, oh, you know what, I can't stand this waiter, you know if that all of that. No, you're there to do the job, do the job, go have a drink with your mates after, and you can whatever, do what you want. But if you're doing a professional job, you have to have a professional mindset.
0: Um, I'm trying to use a new phrase now for that pod- I hear podcasters using, which is we'll switch gears a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I haven't used that one before, but I, I was going to try and get it in today. Um, I want to talk a little bit about running and some of your work around um, coordination and smoothness, um, which is very, very interesting to me. Um, really, really interesting. I've heard like you talk a lot about periodization and a little bit about placebo, actually, which I didn't know if we were going to get into that, but that's actually that's that's so good like that's so so important i think but um when you talk about coordination and ru- and smoothness in running or in sports are you able to define those terms or is that a very hard question to start with uh, it
1: is a hard question
2: but i mean uh, i'll have a go uh, you have to
1: catch me a little bit now because i think i in that paper you're talking about, I think I probably did define smoothness, but I can't remember exactly mm-hmm. how I defined it. Uh, so if you go into kind of the...
2: There's a lot of... I don't want to say...
1: There's a lot of research in kind of neurological realms talking about various neural deficiencies and how it affects movements, smoothness. Movement smoothness is normally defined them in, in contrast to a concept called jerk, where jerk would just be uh, it's a, a non a, a sudden change an erratic change now that sounds really filthy, but the truth is that smoothness and jerk I've seen it measured using multiple different scales so um, Using different kinds of movement measures. They have to be relatively sensitive. You know, I don't think, it, for example, something like a GPS would pick it up, but something like an accelerometer would. Uh, but I certainly picked it up. I've used kind of high end uh, accelerometers, integrated measurement units with runners attached to their chins, for example, attached to center of mass. And their smoothness.
2: Slash jerkiness changes with fatigue. Now, what would be? the Why would that be?
1: And I think, and the the opinion I expressed in, in, in that paper is just that: uh, as you get fatigue, there are, noise is a is a constant problem in our neural communication system, and fatigue just adds to that noise you start uh, focusing on certain signals, you disregard other signals, and at multiple levels, chemically, electrically, uh, fatigue starts to mess with the right balance and you become a little less smooth, a little more jerky. Now, why is that even relevant? Well, I guess there's a couple of things. One is from a, from a you know injury micro damage perspective, Jerk is harder to predict. You can't predict jerk, whereas you can predict smoothness. And again, what your brain is doing is thinking, okay, my foot is going to hit the ground. How hard is it going to hit the ground? What are the timing's going to be like? Okay, I know that because I've learned from all these other hundreds of thousands of strides I've taken that this is what will happen. So here's what I need to do now. Here's where I need to position the tissues. Here's how I need to co-contract to get the right stiffness slash stability. Boom, oh, and I have a smooth landing. So that smoothness begets smoothness. If now things are going a little bit wrong because uh, transmission is interfering with because of the negative effects of you know chemical and electrical process of, of fatigue, less accurate. You hit the ground, and all of a sudden there isn't a, a nice smooth absorption, it's like boom, and there's a big jerk.
2: Uh, so
1: yeah, running fatigued versus running non fatigued, there would be a difference in germ. Previous injury, a lot of the time, uh, there's a legacy, obviously, and that legacy of, uh, can often be manifest as increased germ. Now, this has been measured in various ways in different domains. And so, likewise there definitely is um, inconsistencies in the literature because people are using all types of measuring tools and on all types of different things. And it could be uh, in in patient scenarios and in athlete scenarios. So I would say it is a mixed picture, if I'm honest. But what I would think is that theoretically, there is a very logical assumption there. If My brain is always trying to predict what's going to happen next. So it can take remedial action now to reduce, to lessen the negative consequences of of impact, of of loss of stability, all these things, then it makes sense that smoother is always easier to predict than erratic jerk.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And
1: erratic jerk will always put more load on the tissue and require more of a compensatory action. So when we move, our brain is always, um, that's the right word, taking where we are and then making adjustments, making little calibration. Easy to do when things are nice and smooth, much harder to do when things are jerky. And when I say harder, I mean it's more uh, energy expensive. It is more direct mechanical stress. And neurally, it is harder to plan forward to the next move.
0: <laughs> is, is the... Is is the jerk then associated with more variability away from the normal, quote unquote, normal movement that you would see, let's say a runner, like, no, I don't even want to elaborate on that. That's, that's my question. <laughs> so more, more variability maybe is associated with more jerk. Is that, is is that right or wrong or no?
1: Um, I, that's a really good question. I don't necessarily think so. I think they might be on slightly different scales. I, I, here's what I mean so if you with the variability uh, research I think it's looking at slightly more macro scale than the jerk like the jerk I think is happening at a very low but very fine level mm-hmm. variability and I don't think anyone's really figured out exactly what's going on with variability like is it increasing or decreasing as a result of fatigue or prior injury and I think the truth is it's changing Mm -hmm. now depending on where you measure what you measure that change might be an expansion of variability you do it somewhere else up the kinetic chain and it might be a contraction of variability so the way i think of it is that variability is a parameter that your central nervous system plays with to try and disperse stress but when you get fatigued, you know if more and more that motor units, for example, are coming offline or, or don't want to do their shift of work, then what happens is uh, if you have reduced variability, it is it is now becoming dangerous because now you have smaller population of working units getting hammered with the workload all the time. Elsewhere, it could be that now. The workload is being dispersed amongst so many different tissue components that a lot of them aren't used to being hammered in that particular way. So they're not accustomed. So the ideal scenario is I have an expansive uh, population of working, let's call it fibers, but you know, there's all types of components and they're conditioned for this work. So they can share the duty cycles amongst themselves and I'm going to be fatigue resilient if that is the case but if i have lots of prior injuries maybe weren't rehab thoroughly etc etc i'm getting really fatigued maybe i'm stressed so there's a little bit of background tension my working population is reduced now to compensate for that i might um, just keep all that work within that population in which case they're going to be exposed to mechanical break. Or I might expand that working population and start using fibers that aren't normally used within this movement, and now they're vulnerable because they're, they haven't been exposed to this type of load. And then you get this, you know, all this big long sequence of knock-on effects and consequences, and your running technique—not sorry, not technique—but your running fluency start to degrade jerk will go up, smoothness will go down. Your, again, efficiency, computational resources, energy, they're all going to be compromised as as a consequence.
0: How do we think about solving that problem then? I know we can't necessarily just solve it. Like there's not just, okay, do this and it's solved, but like, do we get people to run in a slightly funny way sometimes and, and they're exposed to that stress? Maybe, maybe not. Or do we just nudge them into like that fatigue and trying to um, try to get them exposed to that stress in that way where they're actually just fatigued. And now that jerk has gone up and you're getting used to that jerk, but we don't push it too much. Or Are we trying to make everyone a bit stronger in the gym so that when the jerk does go up, then maybe the, each of those, each of those muscles are able to deal with that, with that load or Do any of those things sound reasonable or one sounds more promising to you than another? Uh,
1: With the exception of getting people to run in a funny way. (laughs) I just threw that in there. (laughs) Um, No, this is as far as we are with this. Okay, so let's see. Uh, But I would think that the way I would frame it in my head is uh, how can I build capacity? So maybe I can just enhance material stress. So that's, I'm in the gym, perhaps. I'm going to load these tissues. I'm going to try and just build up the capacity of those tissues so they can take a bit more. Then on the, and I know we're using running as an example here, but I I would take, their basic running form, and I would disrupt it by, not by getting them consciously to do something different, but maybe running over different surfaces, Uh, different inclines, different constraints. If it's field sports player, there could be all types of, you know, different types of drills, different type of footwork type things you can do. I'm not talking about silly things now, you know, but um, ones that are at a meaningful intensity. So there's something around just from a mechanical perspective, can I make tissues more resilient? Then there's something around, okay, can I expand my uh, population of, let's call it educated tissues? And obviously it's neurological as well. You're having to upgrade your control of those specific motor units. Um, I think there's also potentially something around I don't want to get lost too much here, but maybe there's something around reflexes, reflex actions, automated postural adjustments, things like that. Uh, and I think that that's an area where we don't actually spend much time trying to uh, devise training interventions that can enhance that. So uh, some cultures do, or when I say cultures, I mean sporting culture, some specific sports where there might be a lot of plyo type work or uh, drop-and-stick-type movements under different types of constraints. I think there's probably a value to that. Um, So that's three. And I don't think we're any deeper than that. I don't think we, like, no one has got into intervention studies with this other than some very small ones that have been promising so far, but, you know, you couldn't hang your hat on them. The one thing I would do, and this kind of goes back to where we, we started with, I would also have some type kind of intro intervention that was some, something around the athlete understanding why we were going to do what we were going to do so that they are bought into that. I'd also give them the opportunity to, to regulate it. In I don't really feel that's working for me, but I do notice when I do this, I kind of building their opinion and perspectives into the design, process of, of the training intervention. So there are all the boxes that I'd be looking to. Okay, well, let's hit that, let's hit that, let's hit that, let's hit that. And maybe let's try and integrate, integrate these. Can we measure it within or whatever our environment is? Can, can we measure that? Can we put some type of metrics on it? Let's try this, let's evaluate, let's recalibrate, let's go again.
0: Yeah. Is there, is there? So obviously, the smoothness for every every person, every runner, let's say, is different. So like my smoothness looks different to your smoothness. um My smoothness doesn't look too good, but um, the there's a lot of jerk there. But um, is there is there a right way to run then? And I say this in in a way that like uh, understanding everyone is different, right? So everyone is different. Like you saying Bolt looks different to Christian Coleman and whatever. But typically, like as you as you see if you take the 100 meter the best 100 meter sprinters in the world they start as they get better or 100 meter sprinters as they get better and better and better they they start to look a little bit more similar I would suggest than than different versus me doing 100 meters versus everyone that, that runs steps up to the Olympic final they they all look more similar than different so is there is there a right way to run like they're all starting to strike on similar parts of the foot they're all doing similar things Marcel Jacobs isn't Going into any knee extension, actually, he seems to look very, very different. But like, is there a reason that they're all starting to look more similar? And is there, as as they get better and better and better and more highly trained, is there variability starting to go down then as they as they start to improve?
1: Again, that's a really difficult one. I definitely have a goal No, I think there's a couple of things here. There's runners and there's elite sprinters. And the past few years in my head, I'm thinking. Well, actually, they're not the same.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I think uh, elite sprinters, uh, sorry, sprinting at an elite level, like going so you know, whatever nine nine, um, that's not an evolutionary movement pattern anymore. That's very stylized for specific reasons. Um, so, I think that that's an influence. I. Any other distance other than 60 or 100, you know, I, I, I think is nearly a slightly different category of running. That's running in a sense. And this up here, this is sprinting. It is becoming more stylized. People are getting faster. I think there's a bit of an influence of culture. So frontside mechanics, backside mechanics, you know, these things have come in and out of fashion. Uh, the sprinters are being coached in relatively similar way. so what's happening around me lifting that seems to be getting more consistent but yeah as you can tell by my answer I think it's a bit messy Um, and I think that in my head there is an argument that okay we can stylize a bit more at the very very top end of the lead sprint but there's still going to be outliers around certain components for everyone else in the running world, for me or you going for a job or a, you know, an elite footballer or a elite, elite rugby player or whatever it might be, uh, then I don't necessarily think there is a, a right technical model necessarily, unless you're doing something completely bizarre that's nearly non-human. It's like, we've all learned to run. We didn't all start running when we started playing sport. Our journey towards being runners started with our you know, crawling. It is deeply, deeply wording. Um, it is hacking uh, together lots of you know very, very evolutionary embedded shortcuts and little circuits and customizing them to our particular strengths, weaknesses, peculiarities, oddities, and accumulating all of those into one. So I'm I'm very much on the side that I I don't
0: to feel when
1: with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Did, can I just check did you? Did that answer your, your question?
0: It answered my question. Actually, it was very helpful with regards to the sprinting. I like to think of that as something a little bit different or maybe completely different because maybe there's only one, not one, but maybe there's a, a specific-ish way to run really, really fast.
3: Mm.
0: And then... Non specific ways to do other things really well that aren't just going the fastest possible.
1: Yeah, I, and that's where I, where I am. I think that there are probably key markers that elite sprinters need to hit, but there's, only, there, there's not maybe a lot of them. And there's lots of other things then that they have scope to be as variable as they want to be in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I take a lot of my lead in this through people like Dan Path and Stuart Macmillan in, in August, if you're familiar with, with their work. And um, they've thought about this a lot more than me. Uh, yeah, and, and, and they're intelligent folks that are kind of dedicated to their craft. So that might be a good place for people who want to learn more.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, but there is, there, is, there is a reason why, like, pretty much every child in the history of the world decided to stand up and walk in a certain way and run in a certain way in this reciprocal nature. And that must suggest that like locomotion is embedded in or certain patterns are embedded into our DNA, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I know you didn't mean DNA in a kind of a
3: technical
1: mm-hmm. sense, but yeah, no, they're absolutely embedded. In us. I mean, those basic kind of control units in the spider, they're there since we were crawling. You know, and then you just redeploy crawling to running, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So they are really deeply embedded. That's of the reasons that, Yeah. And then it's customized over the course of our lifetime to suit all our various past experiences. You know, shape of joints, everything, all our own idiosyncrasies are, are kind of well are brought together, blended together to give us our different running style. And I mean, you, you only have to go out, and, you know, with a squad of field sports players and get everyone to run and you, you're going to see little bits of everything. Mm-hmm. I, I, I guess where there is a problem for me is where people look at how someone runs and then start making judgments about how good a runner is. Disregarding how long they can run for, how fast they're running, and there was a really interesting piece of work done. Where there's a legendary endurance physi- physiologist called uh, Dr. Jack Daniels in the US, he has been you know working in elite context since the 70s. And he did a really interesting study back in maybe uh, so sometime during the 90s, and he got a load of sub elite runners, so really really good. 15 years training in the bag. And he got them to run. And then he sent the video out to elite sports scientists, elite coaches, and said, rate them. Couldn't. Mm -hmm. How they looked had no relevance and how fast they would go, or sorry, what quality of rudder they were. Mm -hmm. So that's not proof, but it is interesting.
0: Yeah, at a certain stage, yeah, at a certain stage. I'm sure if if it was sub-sub-sub-elite, they could rate them. But
1: that's a really interesting point. If you saw a silhouette of a couple of sub- sub elite runners or a very good runner and a very bad runner, would you be able to tell the difference? And I would think, and I think you're agreeing, yes, you would. It would be very hard for you to put your finger on exactly why they were better, mm-hmm. but you would not nearly instinctively know they're better. And I would suggest that the difference in factor is smoothness yeah that we can just detect whether something is moving in a kind of a pre-planned orchestrated smooth way or if it's i'll go to here and then i'll readjust and i'll go to here and readjust mm-hmm. so i think that smoothness is very deeply wired it makes sense that it is because it saves us newer resources it stops us having to constantly be checking and changing planned activations. So computationally efficient, uh, e- energetically, it's much more efficient.
0: Yeah, I think we can see that. Like, I think my granny could see that with any, pretty much any sports person, even someone that they, a sport they're not familiar with, like a tennis player, a golfer, someone who throws a ball. Like, I, I think most people can say that looks good, or that looks smooth, or that looks coordinated. They can't define why, but they can point it out. Uh, so yeah, I do. I do think that's something that we have the ability to do.
1: No, I agree. So again, my thought would be, but why do we get so obsessed with all this other stuff? Now, obsessed is a strong word, and I, I'm kind of using it in the context of the, the the worlds that I have interacted with. But there tends to be so much around uh, technique of someone learning or because you're doing one thing with your hands, it's bad, or you know, your shoulders are doing this. I'm thinking really, I think evolution was clever enough to build in ways that we could gradually sort ourselves out if we ran right enough in a non-injured, non-painful, non-excessively fatigued way.
0: mm mm-hmm. Yeah. my, my issue with, with uh that is like picking out one thing is it's as if the ha- as if if my right arm swing is is running on its own down the down the road, as if it's not in sync with everything else. Like so, if you're going to pick out, okay, I have an issue with that arm swing, then you're going to have to say I have an issue with your left pinky toe as well, because everything is working in sync with each other. So I think if you are going to look at a technical model and and i know dan paf does have a, a technical model that he works towards where he also understands there's a bandwidth but you can't just say that the one thing that looks a bit ugly or looks a bit weird is the thing that the issue is 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 at that one area really unless unless yeah unless there's a need right you have an acl injury there and like clearly your knee just doesn't look so good at this very moment but the
1: only thing is i mean for for all of that.
2: To be true, if there was this pristine
1: technical model, then why do people without that pristine technical model keep performing at world-class levels?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's, it's just we are built to, uh, we're kind of hardwired to accommodate all of our own idiosyncrasies into our own highly customized technique. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, you're saying with the team of footballers, like you see all the different people running and let's say they're all in their mid twenties. But when, when you saw them, when they were all 10 years of age, like, you know, someone, a school kid in your class, if you saw them now, you'd say, oh, that was their run. Like they still ran the same now as they did then. But is there a time when, is there a time, maybe the research can, can you can you can point to some research here where we actually stop? learning or stop developing here and this is like okay this is the way my nervous system or whatever decides this is kind of the way i'm going to run here on a, on a macro level obviously and i just keep going that way and if 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 that is the case then are we to presume that like the nervous system knows best it's saying this is the best option or how how do we decide when we might then intervene and say actually you learn this way but here's here's some ways that might help you improve
1: yeah. You're after wrapping done. that into that, now, but like, let, let me have a go. So, the first one is really interesting. So, um, and like when I was thinking about smoothness, I went down a few big rabbit holes, but a lot of interesting stuff came out of it. And one of the things was uh, with smoothness, and it's it's you know anti-smoothness, which is jerk. We start off very jerky. Like when you're a kid, you know any kind of young parents there will see this with, with their kids. You know their their movements, their control is jerky. As they get a bit older, three, four, five, six, seven, starts to smooth out. You take the measurement, and it tends to peak in your mid twenties. So regardless of the amount of walking steps you've had, your smoothness is still improving up until your mid twenties, your third decade of life. That's pretty amazing. We're still learning. We're still getting better. No, no I'm, I'm saying better and I'm taking smoothness as equaling better. As in more efficient, more computationally, energetically, yada, yada, yada. And then it starts to begin a slow, deep cycle until I, the other end of life, again, the movement control is jerky. And I think we've all seen this in our own personal lives. Young kid, yeah, erratic, older, weaker. Maybe some ailments, you know, much more, uh, once more erratic. So there is that transition. I think where it's relevant to, you know, if, if, for example, with runners, I think that is evident over the course of the race as well. You know, okay, you start off smooth, you are fresh. And as more fatigue creeps in, then as, as noise increases within your CNS, then that that jerkiness or sorry, that smoothness starts to deteriorate again. Okay, so that was kind of one part. Yes, there is. <laughs> You'll have to remind me of some of the other parts of that
0: question. so I guess the other part was like, so someone someone is learning up until their mid-20s, but they're, they're, obviously their learning is gonna is slowing down a little bit. Someone looks run, runs in a similar way at 10 years of age and 25 years of age. At what stage do we, or what, not what stage, but when, when do we, when can we maybe say, okay, you have learned a way that your nervous system at some stage decided it was the most optimal way. But here is what I think might be a little bit better or might be a, a different, a different option for you. I'm not going to force it on you, but like, how do we even, how do we make that decision? Or can we just presume the nervous system has the, the answer here, the right answer and, and leave it at that?
1: Okay, that, that's really good to um, okay, I don't think we should presume the nervous system is the right answer. The nervous system doesn't care about optimum. It kind of cares about um, what's the most
2: efficient, the most discomfort free for now.
1: It doesn't really take a long view in that sense. So, for example, one of the things that might change how you run is you get a you get an injury. Now, that injury might be a kind of a neuroplastic pain thing, even where it's just okay. There's a disruption, and I am now plastically
2: um, adapting my
1: wiring, if you like, to avoid that pain, and then that becomes wired in. Your brain doesn't say, okay, well, the pain is gone now, so I'll just go, go back to the way I used to because now it's become more efficient to pin those neurons, pin those motor units at that specific time in the stride cycle. So lots of things like that, and I think we all have long legacies of those, can affect how you run at the micro level. Now, this isn't going to be visually different, let's say. Now, it would be over the course of decades, you know, we would not look the same when we are 70 as we did when we were 30.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but those are the things, and I think uh, the it's, it's useful to think of that as kind of the neuroplastic thing, you know, in, in the same way with pain, you know, different circuits will, will kind of reconstitute. It's the exact same way with movement. So if I start protecting something, and I'm prote- something that's causing sensitivity, I protect it for too long is that becoming wired in? And now that I'm pain-free again, am I still running in, but would, have been, but would be a dysfunctional way to predict what I did. And my experience in, again, you know, with senior athletes is that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think it speaks to the fact that we tend to think of rehab in terms of when the pain has gone away, well, I, I, at least in, come, Competitive sports context, when the pain has gone away, we move on to the next problem and we forget about this rather than, okay, we need to have, uh, we need to fight the legacy of that pain experience, sensitivity experience, injury experience. We need to fight the legacy of that for a number of months, if not years, if not forever, uh, to try and uh, protect, but also. Come back to something I mentioned earlier around the variability. You're you're kind of reducing your capacity to vary if you have one of those winding um, reductions of working population. I'm sorry, I don't feel like explaining that very well, but hopefully the kind of broad message got across.
0: Yeah. No, it definitely did. I I th- I think I'm with you on that. That I just don't see, which is an interesting phenomenon that like someone gets someone has a, a, an injury or a hotspot, as I think you put it, sometimes, and then they go and let's let's say the pain is gone, or they they learned a way around that of maybe not loading that as much, and now the pain is gone and they the, the, the running itself doesn't seem to retrain that. They just have picked up a new, a slightly new pattern and then off they go. And I think, I'm not sure how much some sometimes strength training doesn't necessarily retrain that either. Just, just good old fashioned strength training. And that is like the, the crux of the issue for me, which is also a, an opportunity, I think for us to, if we can kind of tap into that again, I see, because obviously the nervous system is plastic. It's not a pure, strength issue where okay, it's going to take you three months to build back up the strength of this tissue. I think sometimes when we train maybe our plyometrics or whatever it is, some kind of reflexive movement, actually you see people change almost instantly in front of your eyes, which does show that it's more coordinative than maybe more strength as as what some people think about it. But it's just hard to measure too, I suppose. It is. It is, but
1: nearly everything really important is hard to measure once you get down to a kind of a pain slash performance perspective. I liked what you said there. And the fact is that, you know, once you have got yourself into a a rut, and when I say a rut, I mean like neurologically, there's some change in how you're wiring. Where a change is, it just becomes cheaper to keep activating neurons in the pattern that you learn to activate them during that six weeks of pain. There is no motivation to rewire there's no spontaneous okay let's go back to what we did now there is nothing like there is no motivation to do that unless you as the kind of orchestrator of rehab slash rtp unless you kind of force it to know okay we're going to keep after this and we might never get it back to to like it is you will never get it back to exactly where it was but you can build out the capacity by doing what you're suggesting there. Mm-hmm. Not just having a one-dimensional, let's get the muscles stronger. You know, yeah. okay, it's like, okay, well, we need to do some stuff around reflexing, uh, reflexes around these joints. We need to do some coordination control stuff. That is something that we are really weak at in practical domains. We don't even have a philosophy for training coordination. at any time we don't have any type of involved philosophy for training coordination but yeah coordination for me that's kind of the master controller of everything
0: yeah i think it is it is interesting because it's it's so let's say we decide like okay someone had that injury and yeah we're going to strengthen up the tissue but then there is some coordinative aspects to it And, and strength training will probably train some of that intramuscular coordination, but maybe not as much of the reflexive stuff. But so you're, you need to make a conscious decision that we're going to train this stuff. But you can't train this stuff like with a top-down approach. So like a conscious brain-based training, or sorry, yeah, yeah like a conscious squeeze of a muscle isn't going to train it. So it needs to be a conscious decision, but then a not a top-down approach to actually training it because it's too slow. Yeah, I, I
1: wouldn't agree with anything there. Sorry, I wouldn't disagree. I was going to, I was leaving elaborate um, <laughs> well, there. I don't know what to elaborate on. I mean, I think the, like, I think of the co- the coordination
2: aspect. So, as I said, we don't have a
1: framework for mm-hmm. in, in kind of sporting context, it tends to be you just go back and you do sport like movements, maybe in a, uh, a drill type set, setting, you know, you do some kind of single leg bounces or you know whatever it might be.
2: There is there is no real um, uh,
1: training in terms of slow, move, very very slow control movement. Is that helpful? Okay. Well, the research when it comes into kind of rewiring. Uh, Post injury, I, I think the research is pretty clear that it is used. But we tend to look down our nose, and it's certainly in the elite sports context because it's it's not sports specific. Okay, well, it's body specific. Then, singular, you know, stability stuff. Uh, I think we underemphasize that. Different bounce type stuff, activating all types of stability reflexes. I think we under- we we don't utilize that enough. Um, and then there's. Uh, you know, there's the various type of Franz Bosch type approaches. I think, okay, I, I can see how they're doing, doing things. They're forcing you to concentrate on position and relationships between uh, joints and so on and, and execute a go directed movement. Yeah, okay. And then there's all the complexity of, uh, let's say, open field play type setups where you can gradually, kind of progressively overload. Uh, or play with parameters to to give a, a a different learning experience, but what I've just described there is there's quite a number of stops on that road. It's not just okay. Let's just run around these cones and then do it quicker and then do more of them and then we'll do it where you know the coach is acting as the stimulus or something like that. It's and I think that's what we need. It doesn't obviously have to be what I think, but uh, a more uh, detailed. Way of tra- retraining movement post pain or injury.
0: I think I think I really appreciate what Franz has tried to do because it's a really hard problem to solve, and he's tried to some in some way systemize it. I don't I don't I don't love some of the practical aspects of it, but like I, I, his books and stuff like that, the way he's tried to solve this problem, I think is I, I really have a lot of appreciation for it. And even I know Franz get gets bashed a little bit online. But at least he's making people think about this stuff, which a lot of the time wasn't, wasn't brought to the surface at all.
1: No, I, I actually I was at a, a conference at the weekend and I had this exact same conversation, except I was saying what we were saying. If you go back to 2005, before he brought out his first book, prior to that coordination training in, in track and field and our, our other sports was, basically do this movement this is their best movement to train your coordination. Completely kind of bogus rationale. And most of it was driven from track and field. So I had a famous athlete, so I'll do a video, and then I go and watch it because I had a famous athlete, and I'm a freelance coach. When he came in with that 2005 book, he totally just opened up people's vision of, well, actually, this this should be a much more uh, complex, uh, responding to your environment type uh, approach. So he did a really, really good job. Yeah, and I think, yeah, of course it can be criticised. And I, I mean, I'm good friends with him. We present together a number of times on coordination. Um, I criticise some of his bits. We have different ideas, but the job he did was fantastic and the whole culture owes in a, a debt of gratitude, regardless of whether everything is 100% right or not.
0: Yeah. But it just makes you question things and it makes you, it makes some smart people come back with rebuttals that's like, they make them think about it. And it's like, explain why you disagree with that. And that's opened up a whole conversation, which is very, very valuable. Um, I think what, um, so one of my, I've n- nearly, <laughs> nearly done with you, John, if that's okay. Um, one, one really good kind of quote or anecdote that I heard, um, or analogy that I heard you say before was. Um, Bill, Bill Gates doesn't take out the bins in Microsoft with, re, with regards to kind of a top-down approach versus the reflexes at the, just different reflexes and reflexes throughout the body. Would you be able to kind of give us a little bit of a, maybe a little bit isn't, isn't the right thing, but just like what's kind of going on under the hood here with regards to the brain, the spinal cord, and then more peripheral to that? Well,
1: I, I think in relation to movement. Now, you have to understand that the approach I've taken to try to put a shape on this is taking a very evolutionary-based approach. Your brain will not do anything. It is highly, highly efficient. You know, and you all know the stats, it takes 20% of the energy budget of the body. But it will farm out everything it can. And a lot of our early life is spent uh, in the brain learning how to take in sensory information, make good predictions of what will happen, and then just farm out to kind of uh, supraspinal reflexes, spinal reflexes, kind of, you know, you use the word preflexes, which are you know essentially uh, inbuilt non-neurological responses. So, for example, when I land on the ground, my brain doesn't need to tell my foot to collapse and absorb. My foot is built to collapse, absorb, dampen, recycle. So, so that's a, an example of a prefix. So, yeah, your brain will farm out everything. And that's, why, that's one of the reasons why I'm getting back to something you talk about. It's so difficult to change technique. I don't even really know if it's possible. It's possible to change technique. If you hit me with a hammer in the knee, I'll change my technique. If you're telling me to think of something, you know, no, do this, higher knee lift, whatever it is. I'll be able to do that while I'm focused on it, Well, I definitely won't be able to do it in the Olympic fine when I suddenly take my mind on, on to something else because my brain will revert to what is the most uh, computationally and energetically efficient way of getting this job done. So I feel like I'm, I'm kind of sliding off your question a little bit. Do you want to bring me back?
0: Yeah, just just with regards to like what? I, you've quite, You've kind of answered it there with regards to just helps some people, including me, understand like the, the, maybe the limited role that the brain has in running versus stuff that's happening at the spinal, at the level of the spine and so on.
1: Perfect. Okay. I, I got where you're going now. So, yeah, and obviously, let's stick with running as the example. You hit the ground, you have those built in preflexes. The, a lot of the initial shock. Is absorbed by you know, foot collapse. Now that's also poising the structures, stretching the materials, uh, compressing some in such a way that there is a, you know, there, there's a, a recycling of not just uh, energy efficiencies but also control efficiencies in terms of what is going to happen next and through you know millions of steps, you have figured out, well, if I do this, it's a tiny bit cheaper for me computationally and energetically. So you have those preflexes and then you have their lower re- reflexes that are kicking in really quick. Now they tend to be dumb in the sense that it's kind of on off switch. If this, then this. You come higher up, and then there are more complex reflexes, which are more context-specific. If this in this situation, then I can do this. And again, they can be overridden by the brain pretty easily, but unless there's a need to, the brain just lets them go. Uh, And, you know, that type of, uh, that hack, if you like, is built in all the way up until when you come to higher brain centers, you can be thinking about what's on telly tonight, and you're running quite efficiently and effectively. Uh, But, you know, you see a patch of ice coming up, You recognize that and all of a sudden your brain goes, oh, patchy voice. Lower than that, okay, I need to stiffen up. I need to widen my stance. I need to change my stiffness. I might need to adjust my posture a small bit. I'm going to spend a bit longer on the ground. All of these things. Um, And again, not to belabor the point, but it's all, yeah, it's essentially all evolutionary survival mechanisms, really, really intelligently hacked together to make us the, the really really efficient and you know we compare us to other animals humans are the most efficient long distance runners in, in existence bar none uh horses sometimes can beat us but if it's the hotter it gets the less times they can beat us over long distances mm-hmm. and it's because we're we're you know we're wired to run mm.
0: Yeah, I went for a th- I was a very small dog Roxy and um we went for a walk yesterday it was 90 degrees and um she walked for 15 minutes and I was like we're going to go for a 2 hour walk. We never really go for long long walks but um 15 minutes in she was panting too. I was I had to stop. I had to bring her home because I was thinking if we keep going here she's going to just I'm going to have to carry her back so it just made me appreciate it's just interesting, like, how much she struggled in the heat. Just with regards to what you're saying there.
1: Yeah, well, I'm sure you've, you've heard the argument that Dan Lieberman in Harvard had a book out. It, oh. did he, yeah, I think he did have a book out. I can't blanking on the name of it, but Dan Lieberman, his name was, uh, and he uncovered a lot of this. Just how it, it was a revolutionary trick. Like we could catch big animals not because we were stronger or faster or Anything like that, but because we, we, in groups, we could collaborate and chase them until they collapse the heat stroke and they go up and just bop them on the head with a rock. And, mm-hmm. You know, and that was a major evolutionary survival strategy for humans. We are, we are the ultimate, we are nature's best runners.
0: Yeah. Locomotion is a big part of our development.
1: And mm. all our structures and all our neurological structures are pretty much primed for that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, I think as as like when you see someone, I think if you can continue to run into old age, like you see someone still being able to run, they can do a lot of things probably well. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, it's hard because you know, there's such a yeah, there there are so many things that can happen as you go along that stop you being able to do that. Uh, Now, you know, there's been. I think it was a 108-year-old who did a marathon. You know, there's certainly been uh 78 year olds. I think an 80-year-old definitely broke 330, I think, at Whitlock. Like, maybe it was, he was 84 when he broke it. But older humans can do amazing things from right. a running perspective. The key is, you know, just not breaking down with injuries too much before you get to that age.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I have one question, my generic question. Which is, um, maybe I should have sent this one to you, but uh, it's, um, you're going to be on a desert island for a week and you can bring three people with you, not friends or family. Well, they can be friends, but no, not friends or family. Um, But who would you like to bring with you that you could learn from? It doesn't have to be coaches in the industry or just, I suppose, because you have a broad range of interests, I think. So just anyone you could like to learn from for a full week.
2: Oh gosh. I would
1: okay, so I'm just gonna pick three. If you ask me tomorrow it'll be a different three. Yes. Okay, so I take uh, I take Alia Crum from from I think she's at Stanford and she researches the phenomenon of mindset. Okay, so her Alia Crumb is one. Uh, two, am I allowed to go back in time? Yeah. Okay. Uh, a lot of the time, I think that we in, in kind of our industry's focus on what's new and what's current and technology and blah, blah. There was a coach in the 1950s, 60s called Percy Cerruti, uh, coached Herbellion Herbelli to Olympic gold medal in the 800s in 1960. And he was a maverick, didn't believe in big elaborate training plans, any of that stuff. Uh, and he, he coached through inspiring uh, through educating his athletes, and he'd do crazy things like go sandu running with them, even though he'd be collapsing or he collapsed, you know, before the end of the session, just to show them, you know, you can go deep. All these these kind of crazy things, but yeah, him, I th- he seems to be the character. So I'd like to meet him. That's uh, two. Mm. I think I I, I admire. Really good writers, not because I'm in mean, any way literary, but because it's really hard to uh, express yourself well in writing. So I don't know, I'm going to go with someone like Hemingway, you know, mm-hmm. who could get the most meaning packed into a kind of short and packed sentence. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, by I, I, I guess if it was his case, going for a few drinks, some of it might rub off on me.
0: Yeah, that's a good answer. Not uh, a or Machiavell.
1: Well, no, no. They might
0: have. They might have an issue, or do you?
1: Well, I think. That, yeah, I think there's uh, there's closer to home people who have issues with me. <laughs> but uh, Verkashansky and Machiavell, I'd actually be quite. I would be very complimentary with them. Mm-hmm, yeah, They're, those ideas haven't stood the test of time in my book. But for their time, they were great, and that's the thing we can't explain. Being right isn't the thing that's set in stone. You can just be as right as possible for now, but
0: yeah.
1: you know, sooner or later, you're going to be wrong. And that's okay.
0: Exactly. Yeah. That's that's and that's what I mean about some of friends stuff as well. In, in hundred years, maybe they will look back and say they weren't quite on the money with the with the coordination work, but because of the work that him and people like him and you have put in, like it's just massive leap forward for the industry. And that was what those guys were doing then. They were phenomenal Absolutely. for their time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I think that, yeah, if we're trying to do this for everlasting rightness, we're in the wrong game.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And, that, and our ego is out of control.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, John, that was my longest podcast so far, I think. Oh, yeah. man. There's a lot of, <laughs> no, that's, that, that's, um a lot of <laughs> yeah, a lot of great stuff there honestly. I, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on and for all the work that you do. I know you you like obviously you might when you work one on one with an athlete or with a team, you might get you know a pat in the back or you get that instant kind of feedback and makes you feel good sometimes and stuff but um for me at least i want to say thanks very much i'm sure there's a lot of there's thousands of other coaches or whatever that have listened to or read your work and you have had an impact on people a big impact on well, to speak for myself for me on me anyway without ever meeting you or me telling you that so now is my chance to say that oh,
1: well uh, thank you very much and to be honest like a lot of my daily life is here in the Explore wall so i don't ever get those messages so the time we do, it, it, it is, uh, it's very supportive. Thank you very much.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. And then finally, where, um, is there anywhere you'd like people to go to, to find you or connect or anything like
1: that? Uh, yeah, well, I'm on, I'm on uh, Twitter. I, I also uh, at, at Simply Sports. Sorry. Uh, I work for the University of Limerick. at the standard University of Limerick you know, email if anyone wants to get in touch or is interested in your or a professional doctorate there so that's john.kindy at ul.ie i'm on instagram but i'm a little bit infrequent there Uh, but yeah they'd be my challenge
0: okay perfect john thank you very much
1: david my pleasure good to talk to you